Well, I hope you all enjoyed our special upgraded uh, reception. We decided uh, we had such a nice crowd coming, and our theme is really about American Jewish history. We tried to serve some foods on that theme, so we had knishes and stuffed cabbage and black and white cookies and, I don't know, stuff up there. So I can't promise our closing will have such good food, but I think it will. I just didn't want you all not to eat dinner and come here and then complain. Okay, so let's make sure you're all in the right room. Shh. Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I don't think that's a funny joke, but <laughs> I was looking at Steve Shulkoff and I just thought I would say that, but it has nothing to do with your drinking, Steve. I just... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Steve is now laughing. So welcome to our uh, 18th annual CSP One Month Scholar. Can anybody name the 17 scholars we had before? In song? No. Well, we have, if this is your first One Month Scholar, you missed 17 of them. Uh, but we recorded many programs. We're recording tonight, for example. And if you go to our iTunes and type in OCCSP Podcast, you'll find some programs. We are honoring tonight and I'll mention a little more in just a moment. David and Oprah Wilner, or Oprah and David Wilner. Raise your hands, David and Oprah. We've dedicated this whole month uh, of programs in honor of them. I'll tell you why in, in a moment. Uh, we're also blazing it forward tonight. We're honoring the memory of Blaze Bernstein with acts of kindness and educational engagement. And um, please do think of uh, the Bernstein Pepper family today, especially. Our one-month scholar program is supported by an impact grant from Jewish Federation Family Services of Orange County and a generous grant from Jewish Community Foundation. So if you are on the granting committee, thank you. If you're a member and a supporter of Federation or the Foundation, thank you. And um, really, our funding uh, comes from individuals, but we, the institutions help us to create programs like our one-month scholar program. But um, as I mentioned many times before, it's you, the members of CSP, supporters of CSP that make us run. We have no building, we have no employees, we have nothing except for great members who support us and show up at our programs. Thank you, and if you're a member of our 100 person and growing legacy circle, thank you. If you're not a member of our legacy circle and wanna know what that is, see Steve Shulkoff after the program or see me, and we'll tell you more about how you become, can become a member of legacy. Um, the benefits are you help to keep CSP going many years in the future. And um, as I've mentioned numerous occasions, the, uh, the research, medical research that the Shulkoffs have done indicate that those of you who become Legacy Circle members are signed live longer. It's the way it works. So if you want to live longer, become a Legacy member. If you don't want to, you can just ignore it. It's not a problem. If you're listening to us on podcast, please support us with a donation. You can. Visit us on the web at www.occsp.org. This hasn't worked yet. None of you on podcasts have supported us, so maybe someone will surprise us. That would be terrific. I want to thank our checking team. Who worked at the checking team today that Davida put together? Wendy and Davida. Who else? And Fran was a welcomer. Thank you. And anybody else who helped out? Okay. So, our theme for the month it's a journey through American Jewish history. It's a theme that we've, many of us have been exploring our whole lives. Some of us are from the cradle of American Jewish history, which is Boston. No kidding, New York. 
<laughs> Many of you have been on our uh, one or more of our trilogy of New York trips where we really have explored Jewish history. You may see throughout these lectures some photos come back to haunt you from that trip and other photos you may or may not have sent me and authorized me to show publicly. Um, and we have the brochure. I assume you got it in the mail. This one came back. So if anybody knows where Audrea Cohen lives now, please tell me after the program. She'll get her brochure. We have some great programs coming out. And what I wanted to mention was, this is the kickoff program. And then Friday night, we have the topic, um, let's see, where am I looking at? <sighs> Opening program, sorry. Saturday, American Jews power in Israel in contemporary era. Temple Beth Amet, Jews in politics, Temple Beth David, Tuesday, uh, we have anti-Semitism from the right and left, Jews and the American University at Temple Bethel. Wednesday, we start our Brown Bag Lunch series, part one of three, American Jewish history, 1654 through 1880. What do we owe Peter Stuyvesant? Thursday night, we start our, our evening series, Land of Opportunity and Land of Challenges. Uh, the subtopic is immigration and Jewish acculturation. And then Jews and whiteness, Congregation Shir Hamalo. Quite a week. We closed our, um, our lunch series, evening series, to members only to make it more intimate, and then we have more people signed up. So that goes to show you. So show up early for the lunch series if you want to get a chair, and definitely show up early for the evening series if you want to get a chair. We may have to move rooms. I don't know. Um, other programs that I wanted to mention was we have a special CSP patron event on Saturday night, January 12th. I'll be emailing everybody about that tomorrow. So if you haven't signed up, you can sign up to join us for an event just for patrons. Also upcoming, I had some handouts out there. By the way, I want to thank Blueberry Hill for the great food. Thank you, Blueberry Hill. Okay, so upcoming things I wanted to mention. January 20th, new discoveries in the ancient synagogue at Chukok, Israel. So if you're with us on our Israel trip, about 50 people we took to Israel 2017. We went up to uh, the north, the Galil, and um, the archaeologist Jody Magnus, who was here with CSP a few years ago, that's where she does her dig. She's discovered some incredible stuff in the village of Chukok, and I hope you will join us. Uh, we are co-sponsoring the event. It's an event of the Archaeological Institute of America, Orange County Society. On February 5th, we have lessons from Elie Wiesel's classroom with Rabbi Dr. Ariel Berger. And uh, we're dedicating that to the memory of Bobby Cherry, longtime CSB board member and patron. And uh, Ariel Berger was Elie Wiesel's TA for over 20 years, wrote a book about what he learned from Elie Wiesel. I am halfway through. It is a great book. I have ordered a whole box of the books for our CSP members. I hope you will join us for that program February 5th. February 10th is our 13th annual CSP adult retreat. This year, we're going to Montage Resort in Laguna Beach because Alita wanted to spend time there. So I said, fine. Our special guest, we are flying in. He's flying in from Israel just to spend time with us is Gil Chovav. He is considered Israel's first foodie. He's the great-grandson of Eliezer ben Yehuda. We met with him when we were in Israel. We brought him here once, and we're going to spend the whole day with him at Montage. I hope you will join us. If you're at a $2,500 or above level, we'll even throw in a room at Montage for the night, on Saturday night the 9th. So... Um, let me read a little bit about him. While the American food-loving public may be enamored of figures such as Bobby Flay and Martha Stewart, anyone familiar with Israeli food scene knows about Gil Chovav, Israel's foremost food celebrity. He has been the leading ambassador of Israeli food around the world for over 25 years. A best-selling cookbook author, a restaurant critic, and the star of several food-related television series, 
His charming personality and his wit have made him a household name in Israel. As I mentioned, he's the great-grandson of Eliezer ben Yehuda. I set him up with a friend of mine. Um, he gave them a private tour of Machan Yehuda in Jerusalem, and my friend said it was like going with the king of England, or the queen of England, I guess. Um, every, all the restaurant um, patrons came out to see him, to get photos with him. Uh, the staff came out to see him. It was pretty amazing. Also, the final uh, program I mentioned is that we are going to a Jewish roots trip to Lithuania and Poland, July 7th through 19th. That is 99.9% .9 sold out. I have room for one or two more people, and then we have a wait list. If you're interested in learning about where you all come from and a thousand years of your Jewish history, see me later, and we'll talk about it. Um, also, we are, uh, this is the last uh, few weeks of our CSB CAP challenge where you have your CSP hat, you were supposed to be wearing it in unusual places. The Stearns wore, wore it in every state in the United States of America, and then half of Europe, and sent me photos. We have people who went to Iceland with it, we had people who went to the Galapagos with it, and uh, you have a few weeks to try to win awards. So wear your hat, send me photos, or see if you can dig up some photos from this year. Okay, one, one other thing I want to mention was, uh, if you're a CSB member, you should have received a book. If you didn't receive your book, it's because we sold out. You'll get a book later. There'll be a book signing right after this program, another book signing later on. Please take a moment to turn off your cell phones and put it on vibrate mode so we can um, enjoy what's coming next without interruption. Okay, so before I do introduce our speaker, I want to talk a little bit about David and Oprah and tell you why we are honoring them tonight and this whole month. So first of all, you should know that Ophrah and David lived in pre-state Israel. I, had a, I asked them for their bio, so instead of sending me one bio, they sent me two complete 25-page bios, and I had to read through them and then put them together to make it make sense. In fact, I couldn't figure out how they met because their bios didn't have it. So I think I figured it out. Bear with me. My understanding is that Ophrah was born in pre-state, uh, you were born in Palestine. Yeah. In Tel Aviv, in, I, can I give the year? In the, in the early 30s. Fine, 33, you do the math. David, however, was not born in Palestine. He was born in Vienna. He was more cultured, I guess, at that time. You know, it was wild in Palestine. It was over. He's a Gali It says you were born in Vienna. That's what I'm going with. In 1930, and when he was six years old, he got up and left his family and moved to Israel. Actually, I... I think his family took him to Israel. They both attended high school in Israel, but did they meet in high school? No. How do you guys know? Maybe they met in high school. They didn't meet in high school. But David started Hebrew University earlier, where he pursued a career in um, organic chemistry. And while he was there, I guess Ophrah must have matriculated, walked into a classroom, and David said, we're getting married next year, apparently. That's what happened. And they got married, and then Ophrah stopped her studies, but David continued and got a PhD in organic chemistry at Hebrew University. And um, then they decided to come do some work in America to learn more. Then they left America, went back to Israel to do some work, and then they decided, I guess, David, you didn't like Israel anymore? No, I'm kidding. Of course he loves Israel. He got a job in America, and they raised a family on the East Coast in the United States where they were very committed to their Jewish communities, very involved in their synagogues. They were both teachers in their own way. David taught uh, as a volunteer Torah and Haf Torah to, to bar mitzvah people. In fact, did you teach Scott Spitzer? I did, I left a few Right. And um, he was a substitute cantor and a chair of adult education. And Ophrah was among the founders of the Epstein High School uh, that served the Jewish community of 
Onondaga, which does not sound like it was in the United States. Are you sure you were in the United States? It sounds like you were in Canada. Yeah, whatever. Um, well, that's where they raised their two sons. I think you know Ayal. Most of you know Ayal Wilner. I don't know if you know Ram, but he's also one of the two. And when they retired, David retired in 1996, we were the fortunate beneficiaries because they decided they didn't want to be in the cold East Coast anymore, so they moved to Orange County where they have spent time with their family and their three granddaughters. And while they've been here, this, this now connects. I know it's been an hour and a half, but this is how it connects to tonight. They have been longtime patrons and supporters of CSP. Not only have they supported us, um, really, in a very uh, meaningful way, but they've come to programs over the years. David was on our CSP board. He always had great ideas for speakers. And so, um, in fact, in the year 2008, we had a special award to see who would attend the most programs over the year, and they won. And so, you know, you have like special cups, like uh, what's, the, what's the soccer cup that you win if you, if you win soccer? What's it called? The World Cup. And then the, what's the sailing cup? Hockey cup. We had, we had the CSP Kiddish Cup. And in 2008, the Wilners won the cup and then never gave it back. So we had that one year, and they've kept it ever since. I, I do understand that every Friday night they pull the Kiddish Cup out. They fill it up with uh, their wine, and they say Kiddish. So um, we recognized them in 2008, and I, it's my pleasure to recognize them tonight by dedicating our 18th annual One Month Scholar Program in their honor. Please join me in giving them support. I was trying to figure out the perfect gift to give them, and, you know, after quite a bit of time, I know that they love the East Coast. I know that tonight we're talking about East Coast and American Jewish history. And so I went to Russ and Daughters, which is the oldest fish purveyor in America, considered the finest purveyor of fish. And I called them on the phone, and I said, would you please prepare a special treat to be sent in the mail overnight? Not... <laughs> So arriving on January 8th, please don't go away, is the following. It's called The Taste of New York, The Taste of Jewish History. Experience the nostalgic power of food with Russ and Daughter's famous hand-sliced Gaspé Nova smoked salmon, smoked sable, house-curved pickled herring and cream sauce, uh, all-natural cream cheese, scallions, their own bagels, rugelach, a piece of uh, marble halva, and a reusable Russ and Daughter's insulated bag. You are all invited <laughs> to the Wilner household January 8th to enjoy the feast. It'll be like the Rebbe's Tish table in your house. I would lock the door, close the windows, pretend you're not home, and just eat quietly. So enjoy. That's our gift to you. Thank you. Okay. Let's get started with our actual program. So tonight and this month, we're very happy to have with us Dr. Mark Dollinger, Professor Mark Dollinger, who holds the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies and Social Responsibility at San Francisco, San Francisco State University. He's an author and expert in the fields of Jews and American politics, American Zionism, and, and California Jews. He knows more about you than you know about you. A past president of both the Jewish Community High School of the Bay and, and Brandeis Hillel Day School, Mark serves as academic vice president of the Lairhouse Judaica, as well as trustee of the URJ Camp Newman, which I think burned down. You're going to rebuild it, right? Okay. And the Bay Area Jewish Healing Center. He sits on the California Advisory Committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, who was named 2008 Volunteer of the Year by the San Francisco Jewish Community Federation and was awarded the San Francisco JCRC's 2015 Courageous Leader Award for his work against BDS movement. 
Many of what, much of what I just mentioned, if you're paying attention, are themes that we'll be exploring over the next uh, 25 or so days. And um, I wanted to welcome Professor Dollinger. And where's the family over there? We have Mrs. Dollinger and Sisters Dollinger's over there. Because Mark came, because the deal was that Mark was coming down with the whole family, and I think he's got half, he's got cousins and everybody living in the area. We had to rent him a mansion in Mission Viejo. And we filled it with fish from Russ and Daughter. So he'll be hosting you as well. Sunday morning brunch, pancakes, be there. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mar uh, Mark Dollinger to Orange County, California. Okay. If anybody doesn't have a handout, I have extras. I don't mean to upset you so soon, <laughs> but I will. Do you remember the family stories about Ellis Island and name changing? They never happened. Ever. I don't know what to say next. I was raised knowing that they happened. I heard the stories around the dinner table and around the Passover Seder, but it turns out no Ellis Island guard changed the Jewish immigrant's name because the job of the guard was to confirm that the name on the manifest was the name of the person standing in front of them. And as long as they checked the name against the person, their job was finished. As it turns out, names did change. Some were, named, uh, some were changed in Europe before the families came to America. Most of the name changing occurred after Ellis Island, and the families decided for themselves to change their names. Why on earth do we all think that the names were changed by the guards when they weren't? New interpretations in American Jewish history, what really happened and what did it mean, our subject for the evening, Erev Tov, good evening to everybody. It's great to be here and it's great to see all of you. Uh, I want to thank, Ari's taking pictures. I want to thank Ari and the entire team of everybody from, from this organization, which has, I have never seen anything like it in my career, period. My family's here, and they will, and I want to say it in front of them in a test. You all have a social committee whose job it is to keep us entertained and occupied and engaged in Orange County. I, this, this, Ari said we take good care of ours. You do take great care, and we love the mansion, and it's, it's <laughs> Sunday brunch for everybody. Tonight is a taste of the month to come. This is the 30,000-foot big-picture perspective. Here's the challenge. Tonight is only for really smart people. Ari? Well, I, it says right here, Ari said you were all really smart. <laughs> so that works out well. So I want to give you some uh, scholarly background for what we're going to learn in the, in the next three or four weeks. And, and for this, we have to go to the Wizard of Oz. 
And that particular scene, you may remember when they get to the land of Oz and they're told, don't look behind the curtain. Well, tonight, we're going to look behind the curtain. You have in front of you your uh, outlines for tonight. So uh, if you don't have them, we have more copies available, or you can look from someone else. Make sure you read through it. Make sure you memorize it well. There will be a midterm examination in about 42 minutes, and then we'll be able to cover that. You'll notice there is an historical question, um, and that is for every one of my lectures and for my students, they get an outline. It has the question, which is what do I need to teach you in the three hours, Ari, you said we had tonight? <laughs> and then I give you the thesis, which is the argument that I'll be uh, making, and then you could decide to agree. You left at the perfect moment. Um, you could decide to agree or disagree. So to make it easier for you, it's in front of you, and I also have it up on the screen. Oh, wait. No, I don't have it up on the screen. Somehow, somehow this slide has made it into the PowerPoint. Yes, it turns out that this is the CSP Around the World Hat Challenge. And this is meant to inspire you or perhaps intimidate you because you still have a few weeks left to turn in your submissions before the judging occurs. So I'm assuming this is Stonehenge and I'm putting this up first because it's really hard. Um, and, and, and here is Ari, um, who randomly met somebody on the streets of Israel, um, and he have New York, well, even more impressive. You have to raise your hand if, and if you know who this is. Oh, we have a lot of people, you're the first, Jill, oh yeah. Avram Infeld, well done, yes. Avraham Infeld, who I happened to study with 30 years ago in Jerusalem, um, who later became interim um, international director of Hillel, and uh, that was in New York City you bumped into him, and, and one more, <laughs> and one more after that. Is everybody feeling motivated? That's the Galapagos. That's Galapagos? That's going to be the winning one. And now I'm ready to go, because I've got my CSP hat on as well. And now we'll get to the historical question. What are the definitions, meaning, and significance of American Jewish history, historiography, and historical memory? Don't worry about the big words. I will uh, take them apart in a moment. Tonight we'll learn that these three terms define the ways we receive, understand, and interpret the past. Oftentimes, history, especially American Jewish history, is not as we always thought. This month we'll dive deep to learn how and why. It's my job to complicate the narrative and deepen learning, so I'll just let you know on night one of the next month, anything and everything you kind of ever thought, let's just start with the idea that it was wrong, and over the next few weeks it will be corrected, and that's what's beautiful about tenure. <laughs> Some folks, love history. Other folks, not so much. I'm here to tell you for the next 25 days, you're all going to love history. And uh, in order to get to understand it, we need to look at a little bit of its theoretical underpinnings, to look at the discipline of history. And I know I have a colleague, academic colleague in history here somewhere, so, okay, so you can't answer these or tell anybody yet. We'll just get to that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, 
All right, pop quiz. And the question is, how do we learn history, or why do we learn history, or what's the purpose of learning history? And let's, let's start at the elementary school level. Yes, this is Vista Grande School, Rancho Palos Verdes, California, my alma mater. <laughs> so um, in elementary school, what's the purpose of learning history? And raise your hand, and I'll call on you. Yeah, and if you tell us your name, too. Hi, I'm Adina. Hi, Adina. Excellent. Knowledge and learning is great. Other ideas on how or why we're learning in elementary age? Yeah? Make people better citizens. Oh my goodness. Hold on. So I'm doing my Donahue moment even though my students weren't alive when he was on TV. <laughs> <laughs> to become better American citizens. That is an excellent answer because we took it right off the page. What's your name? Hi, nice to meet you. So here's the deal. Um, for those of you who, who, who've heard me speak before, because I was here a year or two ago, um, I have prizes. And the prizes are if you have really good answers or even really good questions, and, uh, and you get the first prize, um, which is a genuine Jewish studies-themed multicolored pencil. Well done. <laughs> I'm just going to put these right up here so you can think about it, okay? All right, so, yeah, yeah. To instill in children at that age a sense of connection to the present and how they got there. Excellent. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Sometimes students try to gather all of the same kind of variety. So let's start, let's call this civics. A reason for studying history is to become, at least in public elementary schools, to become better American citizens. We learn history to teach our children who their heroes should be. And if you go back to grade school, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln were the heroes in a civics and citizenship lesson. We also teach our children who their villains should be by looking at historical actors and actresses that we don't want our kids to model themselves after. Well, what's good about a civics-based approach to history? You raise better kids in public school to be better informed citizens to create a better and stronger democracy. Because those kids will someday vote, and when they do vote, you want them to vote the right way. Well. I know. I can't say that line anymore, like in the last two years. It all gets twisted around. All right, and that sounds great, except we need to invert the civics approach to elementary school education. What's bad about that approach? Well, who gets to pick who the heroes are? And who gets to pick, yeah, yeah, that's a rhetorical question, right. Yes, the textbook does, the teacher does, the school district does. And maybe they're wrong. Because maybe over the generations, the kind of people that we 
that we heroize or demonize, or the ones we hear about or the ones we don't hear about keep on changing. If the goal of elementary school education is good citizenship, what about kids who aren't citizens? And what about all the lessons we want to teach that are not citizenship related? The history then gets pre-selected, pre-interpreted to achieve a predetermined goal. And educators become less interested in what actually happened and more interested in spinning whatever happened to get to wherever they wanted to be. So when I was at Vista Grande School, where we follow the rule to be helpful and kind every day, don't you all remember your alma mater song from elementary school? <laughs> flag high school. I said, we go all the way back to third grade, you know, on, on, on flag day. We got a citizenship grade. Did you all get citizenship grades in elementary school? I don't remember bringing my passport in to get my citizenship grade. And it wasn't a letter grade. It was H for high, M for medium, and L for low. I have to believe, in hindsight, that they weren't actually testing our citizenship. What they were really doing was finding out if we behaved, right? Whether or not we obeyed the teacher. And if you obeyed the teacher, you got an H. And if you were a troublemaker, you got an L and a call to your parents. That's what citizenship meant. I just felt bad for Mike Medeiros, kid in my fourth grade class, bouncing in his seat the whole time, getting L's sent to the principal. I think he just had ADD, and we were not diagnosing that at the time. And he was, and, and, and he sort of, you know, suffered in his elementary education. Well, let's switch this to Jewish education. Because I argue that Jewish education and our understanding of Jewish history follows the same model. That is, we're doing it to make our kids better Jews, however we choose to define that term. We teach our kids Jewish history so they can learn who their heroes should be and who their villains should be. We teach our kids Jewish history to strengthen their identity and to strengthen Jewish continuity. But what about those parts of Jewish history that might, might not seem to do that? Or ones that even go against it? How do we teach or how should we teach traditional Jewish views about non-Jews that aren't that flattering in the modern world? How do we teach halakha, Jewish law, with women's rights or gay rights? How do we teach humanistic Judaism, where one could say one could be Jewish and not believe in God, or worse, how or do we teach the fact that there are anti-Zionist Jews as well? I think these are the most challenging questions on how we approach our history. We teach tikkun olam. It's our favorite English, I mean Hebrew word in Jewish education. Um, but do we teach Jewish opponents of tikkun olam? Southern Jews in the civil rights movement did not participate as their northern brothers and sisters did. And in the north, there were Jewish apartment owners who mistreated their African-American residents. So this is our fundamental question. How do we want to raise Jewish kids? What stories should we tell them? How do we engage? When do we engage these more complicated issues? And how does our teaching of American Jewish history help or hurt in this particular endeavor? So let's grow up a bit. Let's skip middle school, because that's traumatic anyway, and we'll go to high school. I was raised in Southern California. Go see Kings from Palos Verdes High School, about 45 minutes up 
up to 405. At the high school level, we offer more sophisticated analyses and complexities. Our young people are now old enough to consider some of these tougher questions. In Jewish education, though, it's still a struggle. How do we get our kids to stay in shul after B'nai Mitzvah? Do we get more serious in the study, which ostensibly we should as they grow up, but we're going to risk having them all drop out? Do we lighten up the Judaica in order to make it more appealing to them? And when we've done that, we've just dumbed down Judaism. There are, of course, pros and cons to each of those, and those of you in Jewish education, I think, know them well. How do we teach high school about Israel and Zionism? How do we engage Palestine, the occupation? How do we prepare them for Jewish life on campus, for anti-Israelism, anti-Zionism, and on my campus, sadly, anti-Semitism? So with this, I put up Irvine, because we're in Irvine. I think we're like, aren't we like basically on the campus now? Pretty close by. So let's look at the university and the meaning and purpose and nature of studying in the university. To be terribly reductionist, there are two ideas on what the purpose of the university is. The first one is the third person center for critical inquiry. This is that place you go to, off to college. And you live in the dorms, and you go into a classroom, and you debate ideas. You debate every possible idea freely, and openly, and critically, and analytically. And at the end of four years, you know how to think, and you know how to write. And the professor's job is to teach you how to think, and how to write, and how to be analytical, and how to emerge with a much more refined brain, at least in the liberal arts. So this is the approach to the university that my Department of Jewish Studies embraces, and I think most American Jews do. Um, do you like that view? Does that sound good? So that's what's called a leading question. When I offer it, and the answer is obvious, I'm playing a trick, you see because nothing could be worse than that view. You see, there is another definition, and that's called the Identity Project. The Identity Project says the purpose of the university is to bolster and strengthen the particular identities of the students. And here's a story. When I was teaching out in Pasadena, my office mate was an African-American sociologist of ethnicity and race, a generation older than I, a former president of Malcolm X Community College named Professor Milton Brown. And we had an office front and back, so he had to walk through my office to get to his office. So I'm sitting there, and he's got a young black man, student, from the football team, because Milton's specialty are black men in sports, and they're having office hours except Milton is getting in this student's face, asking about his mother, about his father, um, yelling at him, basically. And then at a certain point, the student says that he's going to go to the NFL, and Milton lets him know he is not going to the NFL, and starts giving him on the data on him, he's going to go to jail or he's going to be dead. And then the student walks out. And I walk to Milton with my chin dropped, 
how the hell can you talk to a student like that? And he smiled and said, white boy? And then he sat me down and said, you enjoy the privilege of having your students sit in front of you and you say, what's your thesis? What's your assertion? How and why can you prove that true? What is the significance of what you're saying? Because that's the world of the university in which I live. And he's a sociologist of race. And he knows why in community college, especially students of color predominate. And he knows that his obligation as a tenured member of the faculty is to intervene in between his students and death and to do all he needs to do to get his students transferred to a four-year school, get the college degree, and get going in life. And that means he has to do and say what he says to his students, and I don't have to say to mine. According to the Identity Project, you've got to build on the identity of your students, and you have to teach them their history, because they've got to know their history. Because if they don't know their history, how on earth are they going to change the world? Because the Identity Project says the purpose of education and the reason we learn history is because we want to change the world. And oh, isn't that beautiful? That's like Tukon Olam in Jewish studies. And for my white and privileged students, I am offering them the theory of Tikkun Olam. And they're gonna go collect aluminum cans, and be nice to their sibling or whatever they do. But if you're into the identity project, you're literally saving the lives of your students and trying to change the systemic isms, racism, sexisms that happen in society. And that's not pretty. Which means, for American Jews, it's actually about relationship to power. That the way we understand our history, the way we teach our history, the way we internalize the history is related to our social standing. And that I, as a Jewish studies professor, can afford to get to have the third-person detached critical approach to the university, and my colleagues in the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State can't. So, pop quiz. For those of you who are academic historians or heard this last year, you can't shout out the answer or tell your friends. Definition of history. This is the easy one. So I want to raise your hand for the definition of history. You have to raise your hand so I can call on you. Oh, please, it's the easy one. Thank you. His story. Thank you. A gendered approach. Oh, wait, it's another CSP hat challenge. It made its way right here. That's actually the group picture. And where is that one taken? All right, that's the New York trip, and we've got at least one person wearing the cap, which qualifies it for tonight. The story of the past is history. Oh, wait, there's another one. All right, we're good. Here's the tough one. Historiography. Anyone who hasn't already heard the answer? Yes, please. The way in which history is taught. Well done. So, if you look at that word, it's graphing of history. Historiography is the history of how we write history. Or, as the late Rabbi Dr. Professor Michael Signer likes to say, why use a monosyllabic when a polysyllabic will do? The study of how historians have studied the past. But wait, one last CSP moment. 
and a pencil for someone other than Ari who can tell us who that person is. Oh, Ari Cat, other than Ari, thank you. Who said Hasia? Okay, we'll get a pencil for you. Hasia Diner is uh, one of the leading distinguished scholars in my field of American Jewish history. She's at NYU. She writes on uh, Jews and food and lots of other interesting stuff. So, so here's, here's historiography. Every 20 years, history changes. It actually doesn't change every 20 years, but the way it's told changes every 20 years. Here's, here's the best way to describe it. Let's say you're a white student at the University of Mississippi in 1840, and you're reading a US history textbook from the University of Mississippi Press, and you open to the chapter on slavery. What's it gonna say? It's a state's right, it's a good thing, right? A positive good. There's actually seven independent arguments for why slavery was a good thing. All right, now let's move you 20 years later, 1860. Let's put you at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, with the textbook from that university. Open up to the slavery chapter. What's it going to say? Slavery is terrible, because it's the center of the abolitionist movement. So if you didn't know anything from nothing, and you had both textbooks side by side, and you read the chapters, you wouldn't know it's the same historical event. So what we're going to do this month in American Jewish history is actually historiography. The history you can get in the textbooks and you can go and read. And the students are obligated at the university to do that on their own. They come into the classroom because they want to understand how different generations of historians have understood the same moment in different ways. And that's going to elevate us one level. So I would like to show you my favorite polysyllabic. Yes, there it is. Filio pietistic. I'll help you out. It's from the Latin. Anyone? Yes. So, Ari, I will tell you why almost no one ever gets that polysyllabic well done. Take a pencil. I go back to the mic for the people who are going to donate a lot of money from the podcast. Filio pietistic, literally love of one's own brother. It translates here to ethnic self-congratulations, which translates in American Jewish history to, aren't the Jews great? They're fantastic. Everything about them rocks the modern world. You see, the first historiographic generation in American Jewish history and Jewish studies, and frankly, in all of ethnic history, everyone who writes a book writes a book about how great their group is. And that's called filiopietism. So it would be filiopietistic, historiographic analysis. And here's your challenge. You have 25 days <laughs> to use the phrase filiopietistic, historiographic analysis in conversation. And then you have to come back to any other talk and raise your hand and wave it, because I'll forget, and tell us the story. You can't say that you went to a great CSB program and learned about filiopietistic historiographic analysis, that would be cheating. You have to have an ongoing conversation for which the phrase filiopietistic historiographic analysis naturally occurs. The second generation of historiography says, oh, the Jews stink. Everything about the Jews is terrible because they're in grad school, they're getting PhDs, they want to get published. 
And you get published for historiography, not for history. So if all the other books said the Jews are great, you got to write a book the Jews aren't great. And then the third generation says, oh, no, stop bickering. The truth is somewhere in the middle. And then the fourth generation says, oh, you're asking the wrong questions. It's really transnationalism. And then the whole thing starts all over again. So we will be engaging in each of the talks as we go through what the latest historiographic fields are. Now, let's go to memory. Historical memory is what we remember about the past, even if it's not what happened at all. And I open with the Ellis Island story because that's sort of the classic historical memory. So history is what happened. Historiography is how historians remember and write about what happened. And historical memory are the things we choose to remember collectively, the things we choose to forget, and the things we choose to remember, how it is we're going to spin what we remember. So the job of the academic historian is to decipher those three words through whatever topic we're discussing. So as we move through the month, we are going to be looking at history, historiography, and historical memory. So now, let's apply, at the 30,000-foot level, this question of history, historiography, and historical memory. And, uh, this will be the American Jewish history version of There Is No Santa Claus. I'm just warning you. It's a trigger warning about what you believe might be true. I warmed you up with the Ellis Island, so be ready for this. We're going to start with the exceptionalist thesis. The exceptionalist thesis was the dominant historiographical approach of American Jewish historians for a long time, which is a nice way of saying you can't argue that anymore and get published because it's already too old. Exceptionalism asks the question, is the United States, or was the United States, different and better, exceptional, for Jews than any other place at any other time in Jewish history? So when you teach American Jewish history in a semester-long class, you're basically up against, are you going to present American Jewish history as a history that's better and different than any other Jewish history? What do you think? Do you subscribe to the exceptionalist thesis? Do you think that American Jewish history is different and better than any other time or place? Knowing that our honorees are here from pre-state Israel as well. <laughs> Those are three excellent dissertation ideas. Thank you very much. Right, and, and I'm, 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 I'm gonna answer by not answering to say that's exactly the point. Because what you have to define is different and better, and then you have to locate it in a time and place, and then you have to write a study for it, and then you have to compare that somewhere else. You go through like 10 years of work, and you publish the book, and then some graduate student reads it and finds another time and place and tells everyone how you were. I'm not speaking personally, I'm just reflecting on what it's like to be an academic historian. Um, so by whatever standard you wish to have on different and better, do you think that the exceptionalist thesis applies in American Jewish history? Yeah. All right, we're going to do a vote, okay? And you have to vote, and here's how the vote goes. Yes or no. Is the American Jewish historical experience different and better than any other place, however you define the terms, however you know about other places? So everyone's on the hook now. Okay, 
And don't look around and see who else puts their hand up before you vote. This is a democracy. That's why y'all went to elementary school. Okay, so who says yes? Raise your hand. All right, now the late people, I'm, all right, you get half a vote. And who says no? Thank you, and who didn't vote? <laughs> and now you did, okay. Here would be the yes answer. And if you looked in the historiography of American Jews, they would talk about rapid social mobility. That American Jews, the Central European immigration, what used to be called the German immigration of the mid-19th century, certainly the Eastern European immigration at the turn of the 20th century, depicted by my tie, which has now become an educational aid and is tax deductible according to the tax code. Thank you. And if I get audited, I can call Ari in as my witness. Uh, government, the United States federal government guaranteed freedom of religion in the US Constitution, right? There's separation of church and state. So, and, and that is often used in the historiography by people who argue the exceptionalist thesis. And American Jews who are predominantly white and privileged have been able to join an ascent to the highest levels of business, of education, of the economy, of social life. So if you put American Jews against Jews in other countries now, and certainly centuries ago, um, we're looking pretty good. Except, you get a grad, yeah. That would be under the section here called no. <laughs> I just finished the one that's yes. That was good, that was good. Um, and certainly not filiopietistic, which I appreciate as well. Um, my department chair likes the word filiopietistic, so anytime I have students in his classes, if they plant the word in one of their questions, they get a prize, you know, just to see if we can work it through. Um, you get a copy of the Black Power book? I put it in three times, just for fun, so. All right, the rise of anti-Semitism recently, in, in, in the last two years certainly, are causing many American Jews to question the exceptionalist thesis. How on earth could Jews be as good as they were if this could happen so quickly? And that's quite debilitating for many American Jews. We can flip it the other way. We can say that the exceptionalism has worked so well for American Jews, they have assimilated at such a high rate that in fact the experience of exceptionalism is anti-exceptional because the number of Jews are rapidly declining because of assimilation patterns. Um, and with our honorees uh, here as well, American Jews have pretty much not made Aliyah and with little or no aliyah, how much of the Jewish identity in the diaspora can be maintained now that since 1948 there's a Jewish state, which is always when you're doing the exceptionalist thesis, it's what, you know, Israeli Jews or American Jews, and then they do a comparison there. So I just would like to say, if any of that sounds interesting to you, uh, please join us for our Wednesday brown bag series where there'll be three lectures related to that or the Thursday evening series, which will be in three parts, um, or on January 13th will be at Temple Judea. And we're gonna be diving uh, for the whole time just into those questions. The exceptionalist thesis works because of religious freedom. 
That is, American Jewish history is the story of religious freedom. And I know this from elementary school, because at Vista Grande School, I learned that the colonies were created for religious freedom. And I knew that the Declaration of Independence promised that everyone was created equal, and the US Constitution guaranteed rights. And certainly in Hebrew school or religious school, I ultimately learned about the separation of church and state because that's historical memory. And that was a filiopietistic historiographic approach. <laughs> I, I, I would like for you to expand upon when, at what point, is it elementary school or middle school or high school, does a student become grounded, grounded in being a Jew? Because by the time they're 13, Mom and Dad say, okay, you don't have to go to Hebrew school anymore. Then starts the assimilation because then Friday night they yeah. you know, can go to the baseball games. That's, been that's, a, that's a great question, and, and I don't actually have till midnight. It, 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 it's a 45-15 contract, and I am looking at my watch, so I'll be finished within 75 minutes of my 45, and then we'll do 15 minutes, so ask the question again, because I'll totally forget it, so when we get to there. Uh, because I did the pro part, and now I'm gonna do the con part, which is how on earth could you believe what you just believed? Because it turns out, even though the colonies were created for religious freedom, the religious freedom was you could be any kind of Protestant you wanted, as long as you were our kind of Protestant. Because if you were a different kind of Protestant, you have to go form a different religious freedom colony. And the religious freedom colonies were actually the worst place for Jews in colonial America. And uh, the Declaration of Independence, while it promised all men were created equal, wasn't actually written for Jews. And it wasn't written for women. And it wasn't written for indigenous peoples or African Americans. And the story we have right up to the contemporary period is the extent to which what's called natural rights theory, for those of you who are philosophy majors, is actually realized from the Declaration of Independence. And uh, this is just a tease for the talk on American Zionisms. I think I'm doing five or six versions of those. I will just tell you that the United States Constitution's separation of church and state totally screwed up American Zionism. And while we're supposed to see it as an exceptionalist idea, it in fact told American Jews that their religion was Jewish and their nation was American. And for a couple centuries, American Jews, generation after generation, have internalized that their religious identity is Judaism, but their national identity is USA, that when the notion of Zionism is introduced, it's actually contrary to America. So we created by the very constitution of this country, Jewish anti-Zionism. And that actually gets to the next part, which is American Zionism. Um, is the American Jewish historical experience exceptional in Israel's greatest ally? Yes, as the APAC model shows us. The United States and Israel are two democracies that have a strong and special relationship between them. American Jews have become incredibly powerful in the country and in the world and have been able to leverage that to establish a strong relationship. Except 
American Jews are pretty much always going to have that pro-Israel relationship from their homes here in the United States. So there are um, six, and I won't read them all out for you, um, versions of Zionism, American Zionism, anti-Zionism, where we're going to talk about separation of church and state and how all of that works. My favorite topic is social justice, because that's my field, Jews and tikkun olam, Jews and politics. What are the pros and cons of social justice? How is it that Jews would be exceptional or not be exceptional? Well, for more on that, I'm afraid 45 minutes are up. We'll just have to wait. Thank you very much. And now I can take questions. I'll take, let me take your question first because I wasn't able to answer it before. And you were basically asking when sort of Jewish identity gets centered. Yeah, so um, it's an excellent question outside of my field because I'm an American Jewish historian. Um, and I've just found in my Jewish education work, you know, as an educator, it tends to be different for all kids for all different reasons. Jewish demographers are all chasing the, whatever the factor will be that will, that will give the answer for that. Um, wouldn't the questions you've asked be compared to other societies, everything being relative? And so how can we say we were less, more so or less so in Spain or in Eastern Europe? I yeah. think we have to look historically at the United States as unquestionably being exceptional, not necessarily good, but exceptional. All right, so, so this is about relativity. It's a great question, and it actually goes to your earlier question on sort of how do you set up a study. Uh, so when I was finishing my dissertation, I went to my advisor, Bruce Shulman, and I said, I want you to criticize my dissertation every which way you can. I'd rather hear it from you in the privacy of your office than in all the journals when it gets reviewed. I said, when I'm done with this thing, I want to be on rock-solid ground. And he burst out laughing at me, and he said, Mark, it's all quicksand. <laughs> And your question just points out the quicksand nature of, the, of relativity, which is to say, yeah, you have to define the terms, you have to talk about what you do, you, know, you have to set all that up. You do that in the introduction of your book. By the way, when you read a scholarly book, that's what the introduction is doing. It's saying what you want to do, what you're not going to do, how you've justified it, and then you have to write based upon that supposition. So what you have just done is articulated the introduction to your next book. And then from that, you would make the case. And then somebody could agree or disagree based upon the suppositions that you started with. Yeah, all right. Why did you become a professor of Jewish history historiography? Right, so why did I go into American Jewish history? All right, so I'd like to give you the funny answer, but it is the serious answer. And that is I came out of undergrad knowing I was going to do Jewish stuff my whole life, and I did US history. Um, and I was, anything but Jewish was my motto. And then I met my... Um, my study partner, Paul, and uh, he was 22 years old, and he was doing uh, water rights in the Central Valley of California in the Progressive Era, and I just stared at him. <laughs> and I wondered, at age 22, how do you know those words? Did they come across with the mashed potatoes at dinner? And then I met Tom, who was doing the relationship of labor union strikes in Minnesota to weather patterns. 
I said, fascinating. <laughs> and then Holly, who came out of Harvard, and she's doing material culture as 17th century northern New England women, which turns out to be a thing. And I sat there looking at my classmates saying, well, I'm not going to write on any of those topics because I cannot compete. And then I had to think about what my topic might be. And then the serious question is, I was raised in Palace Verde, so a lot of you know where that is. It was not a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And I was very interested in the intersection of what is American with what is Jewish. That it always found, in seventh grade religious school, if Israel and the US got in a war, which side would you fight on? Are you an American Jew or a Jewish American, right? I was of that generation of the 1970s. And um, I thought, how fascinating if I could study the, what's called the nexus, that's the fancy word, for the intersection between Judaism and Americanism. And when I look at civil rights, it's always claimed to be Jewish. Uh, that, that Jews are doing social justice work because Judaism tells them to. And then when I got into the archives, I realized this is so darn American and so secular. And then I was interested in why a secular American thing is being read by Jews as a Jewish thing. That's historical memory. And I knew that none of my nine classmates could compete. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Okay, so thank you. That's, that, 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 that hits deeply only because that was like the biggest critique of my first book. So thank you for bringing that back. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Give the Jews some credit was basically the... And, 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 Americans and, and, and because there was, were good things that were happening. So, yes, yeah, so she basically wants... I think you want me to say that it's an exceptional experience for American Jews and that American Jews self-reflect in ways that other groups and people and nations don't and as a consequence of Jewish self-reflection that we're better in some way, that we're, that it's come, kind of lift us. That, that it's justified to, to love ourselves. So um, historiography is about reading the last generation of, of scholarship and saying that they're idiots and that you're smart. So if the last generation was filiopietistic, my job was to, to, to go the opposite. So you're kind of challenging. So Marcy, my wife's favorite college professor was Steve Whitfield, and he's the one who offered this critique to me you know, with my dissertation. But weren't the Jews great? <laughs> Jews were the largest white group represented in the civil rights movement. Jews are the largest liberal, progressive, democratic voters of any, of any group in the country. Um, and it is true that all of the filiopietistic stuff is actually true, and all I'm doing is trying to get a major university press to publish my book, so I'm saying the opposite, right? That's kind of the critique on how it goes. So what I would say is, yes, all of that is true, and it's not true because of historical memory. For instance, the number of Jews who went to the South and sacrificed personal 
um, power or privilege to benefit African Americans was exceptionally small compared to the American Jewish population. The number of American Jews who thought they were in the South risking their lives was gigantic. <laughs> it's kind of like if you're a football fan, I'm a college football fan, and I'm in the stands, but I'm on the field, you know? But I'm not on the field, I'm actually in the stands, and I have to remind myself that I'm not actually a player. So what one would do is one would have to read books from several historiographic generations, and then you would get the flavor of it. But the critique that would come back from, from those, and now I'm giving you a hint. For lay readers of scholarly books, they get really upset when the book doesn't tell them the whole story. We're not there to tell the whole story, we're there to, to, to interrupt the previous way of thinking and to offer a new way to learn. Yeah, yeah. The makeup of your classes that you teach, um, percentage of Jews and non-Jews well, you want to know about percentage of Jews and non-Jews. I'm not permitted to ask the students because it's a public university. Students being what they are, they tend to announce it very, rather quickly. It depends on the class. Uh, I, I am a, trained as an historian, so when I do modern Jewish history and American Jewish history, I tend to have majority non-Jews. That's because the history major requires their students to take history courses outside of themselves, because uh, it's sometimes difficult for non-Jewish students to think they can succeed in a Jewish studies class because they think the Jewish students you know, ha have an edge. Um, I taught anti-Semitism this last semester. Two-thirds were not Jewish, as I could tell. My favorite story is when I taught the Jewish family, only twice, because I'm not really qualified to teach it, but they needed it. I had 13 students, 11 women, all 11 women, non-Jews, all dating Jewish men, <laughs> and all interested in knowing what their future mother-in-law might be like. <laughs> so I spent the entire class telling them that they need to do the reading and critically analyze the reading because this is not the identity project approach to the university. This is the third person detached. Do you think that the concept of at least American Jewish exceptionalism is fairly described as a psychological defense mechanism. That is, we've had such a difficult history and such a, a challenging history that by God, it better be better here. Well, that's a great question. It's about whether there's, it's a sort of a post-trauma question on, on exceptionalism. Um, so the first challenge there is it's going to assume a self-identified Jew who is aware of the trauma of the Shoah, the Holocaust, I, I assume is, is the most immediate thought in, in the post-war world. Um, real, the truth is most American Jews in the contemporary period, at least those I'm seeing in the classroom, have no knowledge. Well, it's, for me, the word is consciousness. It's not knowledge. Knowledge is understanding facts. Consciousness is how it affects the way you think and view and understand and perceive. Um, they're totally checked out of that. So I don't, I don't see the impact of the trauma because I don't think they see the trauma. And I'll, I'll give you a heartfelt example. How do you teach the Holocaust in 75 minutes? Because that's what I have when I do the survey class. And I've tried it a couple of different ways and it, it's, it's pathetic. To, to even think you can do it. So um, my colleague, Professor Kitty Millett, is a, is a scholar of Holocaust literature. So I went to her, I said, I, how do you do it? You know, with some kind of integrity. She said, okay, gather 75 minutes 
of survivor testimonies, the really graphic, vivid, traumatic, horrible stuff, and just walk in and start reading. And 75 minutes later, walk out. And I'm laughing, right, come on, you know? And, well, one of her career theses is, why do American Jews look for redemption in everything? And maybe there's no redemption in the Shoah. Maybe Israel wasn't the redemption. And maybe it just sucked. And maybe the way we can teach that in 75 minutes is to immerse them in that moment without commentary. I decided to be a student-centered educator. I asked my undergrads how they would like it taught. And they were like, we need to know what happened and how it happened and why it happened literally walk them through the machination of the killing machine. And I just switched to a straight data-driven, typically in my seminars, they're argumentative, so there's a thesis and you're arguing the thesis, and they get used to that, but then we get to the Shoah, when we get to the Holocaust, we said, don't worry about a thesis for the next you know, three classes, or in the seminar I have a little bit more time. And I said, we're just gonna do 1932 to 1937, we're gonna do 37 to 41, you know, we do that for each one, and we're just gonna walk through, literally teach them what happened and talk about it. And, and I find in the practical world, to introduce trauma to them is the best educational gift I, I have. Yeah. Well, you started off by saying how history is retold every 20 years. Um, is this simply going from one point of view to another, one self-interest, one set of values to another? Or are you getting anywhere in this constant reformat of history? How cynically wonderful. <laughs> I like to think that it's better when I finished writing it and I cringe at the next generation to come. So to answer it honestly, we have something called peer, peer review. So uh, peer review means anonymous peer review. If you want to publish a book, they send it out to three people. They don't tell you who they are, and they just write that you're an idiot all over the place, and then you have to rewrite your whole book, and then you have to go through several stages of that. So at any given moment, we are producing the best scholarship we can at that moment. Understanding that all of us have multiple intersection, intersecting identities, approaches, and understandings, and for those who have kids or grandkids, a different perspective tends to come out. So I think we're reflecting different perspectives and understandings. Um, prior to 1965, there were no women in written academic history, and there were no people of color in written academic history. When I did California Jews, we did a chapter on Jewish women in California, because every other book written on any part of California Jews, historiographically speaking, were all men. So we kind of thought that was a good thing to do, and I'm sure we missed something, and I'm sure the next person who's gonna write the book is gonna point that out to us. So I like to think that we are evolving to a better place each time, and I use it for a little bit of humor you know, to show as well. Um, that because, of, and because I do Jews in politics and I tend to write from the political left, they, there are three Jewish Republican professors and I know they're getting my books, right? Because they're coming back at me and that's good for me to read because if I'm gonna do the best job, they're the ones whose critique I have to embrace. And then so I think we all aspire to be as good as we can where we're at knowing the moment the book is bound and we read another book, we wish we could have rewritten it. Do I, how much, how long do I have time? One more question. One more question. Please. 
you're talking about a 20-year cycle. But if we talk about Israel, you could use a five-year cycle in the perspective and everything would be completely different. I just made up 20 years. <laughs> For, yeah, I just said a generation. Sociologically speaking, a generation is 20 years. Yeah, some fields, some fields can change even in one year if you get a really bright person. You want to upset the school of thought. You, um, so if somebody has a filiopietistic historiographic analysis, it doesn't matter what book they're writing, it's the same thesis. All right, so here's my little joke and then I'll finish up. At the undergraduate level, they have to read the book to know what it says. In graduate school, they only have to read the footnotes. Because if you see who they're citing and you know the historiography, you know what they're saying because you see who it is that they're referencing. So, um, so with that, we, you can have somebody smart enough to undermine everything ever written because they have a new idea and then instantly the entire historiography changes and everyone has to now grapple with that. When you're trying to get published, that's what you want. You, you, you want a book that's, that's going to so, uh, so undermine the way in which it's even understood that everybody else is going to have to head for the hills. Okay, I think we're going to wrap it up. I have a prize for Ari. One moment, I have a present for Ari. Uh, you always got pencils. The pencils work for about three weeks, and then the students, they get a little attitudinal. So I have to go to my level two prize, a pen. I have seven levels. And in appreciation for all Ari's doing, he gets the level seven prize. And uh, have I given you this before? I don't know. Okay, great. So let me take that all your hands. So just so you know, to make the pen work, you have to twist like that. Because if you pull, there's a cap there, pull the cap off really hard. Ooh, it's a 16 gigabyte memory disk. But really, it's a metaphor. You see, what Ari and and the Community Scholars Program is are doing is trying to create Jewish studies a traditional topic in the modern world. So, so here's how this pen works. If I can see the pen, you see, Ari. If you're ever feeling ancient and you want to re sort of recover the Jewish tradition, you can actually write someone a letter on paper and use the pen. But when you wish to move from the traditional to the modern, as those of us in Jewish education do, you can just pop this into your computer and you will be all digitized. So this is, in fact, the uh, Community Scholar Program embodied in a pencil, in a pen. What, uh, what I appreciate learning about tonight is that the study of history has this life cycle of my uh, laptop computer. But every three or four years, I have to chuck it and get a new one. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Hope to see you lots of times over the next uh, month or so. Lots of interesting topics. Have a great night. Take a Kanish on the way out. <laughs> have a good Shabbos. Oh, we're going to do a book signing for those of you who have books um, outside by the table there. So if you like your book signed, the festival will be there.